Dear Church Podcast. For those who are listening who have sent your feedback in and let us know that um, one of the things you struggle with with our podcast is knowing whose voice belongs to who. I want to do a little housekeeping, let everybody know uh, who we are. And my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor of the Faithway Baptist Church in Evansville, Indiana, and I'm the youngest of the uh, of the podcast crew here on Dear Church Podcast. Uh, Martin, you want to introduce yourself? I don't think anyone has any trouble knowing who Martin is. No, I guess I kind of stand out for uh, obvious reasons, but I'm Martin Wickens, currently in uh, Bedford, Pennsylvania, and um, I am the second youngest on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to make this about age, but you know, it is what it is. Oh, are we going in order of age? Yeah, Steve, you got to wait till last. Go ahead, Tom. <laughs> I am Tom Brennan. I pastor Bible Baptist Church in Dubuque, Iowa. There you go. And I am Steve Brudnack, and I pastor United Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. So that kind of gives you an idea of our voices, and you can... And like uh, Brother Russ said just a few moments ago before we started recording is you can kind of pick the young voice. You can pick the just the Brits voice is pretty simple. And then Brother Tom's more of the scholar and I'm, you know, have the nickname of the bulldog, even though I'm ultimately the nicest amongst us. <laughs> yeah, I think people, too, if you really want to know whose voice goes with what face. That might actually detract uh, from the quality of the podcast. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, you can uh, you can go watch some of our live episodes on our Facebook page or YouTube page. And there will be some of those throughout this season as well. And we encourage you to check it out. Today's topic is a bit more of a serious topic. It's also a follow-up. When we discussed this initially in season one, we put out the disclaimer that it was impossible to cover everything in one episode. We felt like um, it would be easy to be uh, labeled as being insensitive by not covering everything. And so we wanted that to be clear, right? So we said that discussing the topic of church abuse is not a one episode topic. And we knew we would come back to it in season two and, and we wanted to come back to it today. And I feel like maybe Tom Brennan should talk a little bit about why and maybe maybe set the stage for this podcast a little bit more. He's got some some good things prepared to say on this. And so Tom, if you don't mind, why don't you just kind of take it from here and tell us tell our listeners a little bit of why we're revisiting this topic. About 20 some years ago, when I first got active online, um, I ran across the Fighting Fundamentalist Forums, the FFF of proverbial Baptist history. And in the course of spending time there, it was really my first interactions with people who had ever experienced abuse personally. I mean, I had verbal and, and, and manipulation and authority-wise, but not not sexual abuse, not not violent abuse, not that sort of thing. And it was my first time to really deal with people who had. And I found that the way they responded to it was all over the map in the sense of how they responded to it in their own life. And the way the people that tried to minister to them responded to it, tried to help them to mm -hmm. respond to it was all over the map. And I think we cannot stop abuse from happening. It's sin. We can't stop sin this side of the second coming. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, of course. And we, we dealt a lot with that in the last in the live episode we did about uh, about trying to prevent abuse and those sorts of things. But it is still going to happen. So when it happens, 
how do we help the people who have been abused respond to that? How do we help them? I don't want to use the phrase get over it because I, I really don't believe that necessarily, but how do we help them to respond to that scripturally um, so that that abuse does not become their identification and it doesn't ruin their life? It certainly is a heavy topic. And for that reason, um, we feel like this side of the perspective needs to be discussed. We feel like it needs to be fleshed out a little bit. And we want to do some talking today about how to help people, how to help people who are um, who have who have that kind of abuse in their background, uh, victims of abuse, et cetera, and also maybe help some pastors and leaders with their response to that. And so, Tom, that was very well put. Um, do you have anything particular that you want to spin off of or maybe base this on as we go forward that helps helps us kind of launch into this conversation? Well, I think there's one of the biblical examples that comes to mind is, and this is not original with me by any means, it's referenced several different places by several people, is how David responded to Absalom's rape of Tamar and didn't respond, did respond, you know, that sort of a thing. There's not much in there about ministry to Tamar. We gather more of that, those Bible principles from other places. But I think the great thing that David did wrong in that situation that was he not just he didn't deal with the aggressor who was Absalom, but I don't see that he did anything necessarily to help Tamar heal. That's an argument from silence in the Bible. But we have to take our responsibility as as ministers to minister to people who are going through horrific things, even if those things are years in their background. I'm I'm sitting in a room as we're as we're recording this, I'm sitting in our church's conference room, which I also use for counseling and I have sat in here week after week after week with various individuals, I mean, over over lengthy, not by myself, but with, with counseling with someone else um, as a team together, trying to help people process things that were done and said to them years ago. And that 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 is our responsibility as God's people. Somebody has to come alongside and pour the grace of God into their life while telling them the truth at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a difficult thing to do. Well, it is because in telling them the truth, so often you're going to say things that are uncomfortable for them to hear, things that are different from the other counselors they've heard, from their peer groups, from their victim identification groups. Um, you're going to tell them answers from the Word of God that are sometimes uncomfortable. But if you do it with the spirit of compassion and you do it clearly from the Word of God, that's that's where the authority comes from, the Word of God. So let's jump into that. What is your first approach? I mean, when you're talking to someone who's been just terribly abused and they're struggling with that in a, maybe a, a myriad of ways. You know, what is your first, what is your first thought going into that situation um, in an effort to help them? Don't say everything I think right at the beginning mm. because they can't handle it. Um, you, you have to be very patient when dealing with people who have, who are working their way through, through, through dealing with abuse you have to give them – I love the Bible word, long-suffering. Uh, you have to spend a lot of time listening in some of those counseling sessions. It's not all counseling sessions, but in, in my case, that's what I'm thinking of as I sit in this room. In some of those, for an hour, I'll just ask questions and listen. I won't say a single thing in response. Um, you're trying to, to ascertain where they're at and let them verbalize how they're feeling. And that's not psychology. That's just 
if, if I want to help somebody, I need to peel back the layers of what they're thinking and feeling. And mm-hmm. um, I think listening is such a tremendous part of that. Sometimes it's listening online as they write the same thing again and again and again. Sometimes it's, you know, months, you, you know, you're dealing with the same sort of a problem. Um, we, we can't ever get past starting with a, an approach of compassion and listening to them. I think that's something we maybe as men particularly struggle with is just realizing the ministry of presence, just being there to listen. Um, and while we're listening, we may be building up a, a, an approach that we want to respond with, but sometimes it's, it's weeping with those that weep and we're just there for them. And I think one, one bad response that pastors and churches can have with the abused is to, is to hide from it, you know, and I think that's been a, a, a valid criticism of many. Um, and I think we just need to be there. And like you said, you know, we listen, we, we give them an outlet. I think one of the best examples I've ever seen of, or illustrations of someone who's been abused is someone who's lost a limb. And you would not look at someone who's, you know, had to have a leg amputated because of diabetes and tell them to just get over it. Mm-hmm. You know, they they do have to get over it in the sense that they need to go on with their life and look forward and move forward. But it is still going to impact every single part of their life. And the fact that it impacts every single part of their life does not mean they're living in the past. It means their past is always part of their present. And I, understanding that helps me, reminds me to be compassionate, reminds me. I would not, you know, walk out of church behind an amputee and say, come on, move on, hurry up. I just wouldn't do that. You, you wouldn't treat someone like that. They're not living in the past, but their past is affecting their present. And it, that dictates then somewhat how I deal with that person. And that's so important in 2022, where our society as a whole so glorifies victims that it is glorious in our society to be identified as a victim. It gives you a higher moral standing. It gives you, um, you know, the ability to, um, to be right on everything. And we just know biblically, that's not, that's not where our identity should be. It should be in Jesus Christ. And if someone that has been abused, buys into the worldly philosophy that, you know, I need to embrace my pain and find, um, you know, my strength in that, that that's ultimately not going to help them. That might give, that might pacify. That's our society totally loves that, but that's not going to bring about healing. So as, as we deal with this, Tom, you've already mentioned we have to be patient with people. We're not just going to say what we think right away. Um, we have to we have to realize that you said something that was very profound. It was their their past is always part of their present. And now let me ask you this: um, Is that something that you are that as a counselor and a pastor that is it one of your goals to help them change that mentality? to where their past is always their present, or is that just a reality? Um, to some extent, you want to change it if, if their past has become all of their present. But if okay. I try to get them to the place where they are entirely beyond that, that's not fair, nor is it realistic, nor is it biblical. Even in heaven, we'll have memories, won't we? 
Now we'll deal yes. with them perfectly. Those memories will deal with them perfectly. And so the, the, the principle is not, we want to get you to the place where you have forgotten your past or you ignore it, but rather you understand when it bubbles back up to the surface. You know how smells remind you of something from your childhood or a song in a mm-hmm. store reminds you of something. So for people who have been abused, these we the, the word triggers, we laugh at it, but it's a genuine thing. Something triggers them back to that place. So what I want to help them with is here's the tools you need to respond to those triggers biblically and correctly and well so that it doesn't ruin your life all over again. Sometimes it's identifying here's the wrong way to respond and then here's the right way to respond. Yeah, and that's that takes time. I mean, you, so that's a great answer and I felt like it needed to be asked. I needed to ask it. Um, I needed to hear it. Um, perhaps someone listening needed to hear it and we need to get better in dealing with it that way. I, I agree that's the correct way to to deal with it. Okay, so you, you're patient with them, you're helping them, you, you're trying to determine um, a plan of action, but is there a place in that process of helping someone that get, you get to a place where you, you're, you're going to broach, broach the subject of the fact or the reality rather that God's grace is sufficient and we've got to lay that all on Jesus and how does that, what does that look like? You know, what does that look like when you're trying to help someone who's been through some terrible, terrible things? Martin, you had your hand up a moment ago. No, I think Stephen covered it. I was talking about that. It's, I was just going to say that it's not just a matter of time, but intentionality. You know, you, as the counselor, um, you have a direction that you know you need to go, um, but, you know, just kind of reinforcing what you said, you know, there's it's, it's got to be intentionality about it. And for the abused, they have to understand that there is a a path forward. Um, and, and I think that brings in the aspect of of hope, you know, that there is hope um, not to ever undo what's been done, but to learn to live and, and move forward. I think Brother Brudnick's statement a minute ago about people who identify perpetually as victims is a really key point. Um, it's it's the idea that it lets them then wallow in that. And it, it sounds like you're going to – you cringe when you're going to make these statements to someone, whether you're typing them or writing mm-hmm. them or saying them, because you're like, I don't want to hurt these, these dear, hurting, wounded people more. Um, but I think he's spot on about that. You're, you, the devil's always going to give an excuse to be bitter. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he, he's really good at that. And, and I have got to show them and I have to live it, but I have to show them that they're not responsible for what was done to them. You know, if you were, you know, uh, violently beaten by your parents, you know, that wasn't your fault. It's because they disciplined mm-hmm. wrong. You're not responsible for what they did wrong, but you're responsible for your response to what they did wrong. That statement, you, my response is my responsibility. And you cannot live in the spirit of victimhood is saying, well, this person did me wrong. And so that's why I am the way I am. What do you do with people, though, who say, well, yeah, you can say that. But in as Steve alluded to that today in today's day and age, I kind of hate that term, but that is what it is, um, that, you know, victimhood has has actually given a platform to people who didn't have a voice before. And, and they're now they're they would say we're not bitter. We're advocates. Well, I would say it's because that thinking is contrary to the gospel that Christ can move us past something to act like 
abuse is something that we have to, or, or the damage that abuse has caused to us is something we can't move past through the power of the gospel is it, 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 it's damaging to the testimony of Christ. And, you know, the Bible says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound and abuse mm-hmm. is sin. It, it's, it's, if, if you got abused, it's not your sin. It's someone else sinned against you. And, you know, we have biblical examples. Probably the greatest one would be Joseph who was sinned against, sinned against, sinned against, sinned against. And he was always responding positively because I believe he saw God working it. How do I know he saw God working it? Well, in Genesis 50, he says to his brothers, you meant this unto me for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, did God, was God in favor of the sinful actions of his brothers and of Potiphar's wife? No, God wasn't in favor of that, but God is so sovereignly powerful that he can take the sinful choices of man and weave it into something that he's going to make. You know, that's the whole idea of Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good to them that love God, mm-hmm. to them who are the called according to his purpose. And I love Tom's illustration of the amputee. You can't just say, get over it. But every amputee is going to, they're going to adapt and use that and sometimes become stronger in some ways. And you've got to, like faith enters into this if you're going to get past it. And, And where faith stops, bitterness begins because then your identity, everything you are is wrapped up in the pain and the hurt rather than God can use this. The pain or the hurt, also the disillusionment that may come with it that we start to believe that nothing's real, especially as it relates to, to people of faith, the church, um, God. Uh, and the, isn't this where we see a lot of what's called deconstructing start to take place? Oh, I think the answer to that is certainly yes. I, I think whether it's deconstruction on the heavy end of it in the sense of, you know, that's a new fashion term for walking away from the faith apostasy or on the other side of it, you're just walking away from church or our kind of church, or you think all of a sudden, you know, all independent Baptists are awful because you were abused, you know, in an independent Baptist church or that was your perception. Um, yes, I agree with that. That, that, that bitterness drives you to focus and overreact in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And if I could just add this, that one of the problems I think that happens in this area relates to us more as Americans than as independent fundamental Baptists, and that is we are insufferably impatient. We stand in front of m- microwaves and wish they would hurry up. I mean, we're we're impatient. And when someone has been through abuse, if we're trying to help them as their pastor or as just a brother or sister in Christ, it, it's not going to happen in one day. It's not going to happen. They're not going to handle everything perfectly all the time. And they may ask some really bad questions. They might, (laughs) you know, but David asks some pretty hard questions of God. Now in, in, in those different Psalms, you see God coming back and bringing him back, but he's in some emotional, pretty dark places and he's asking some things. And I think we need to, I, I like to use this illustration in Matthew seven, Jesus talks about the, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, the foolish on the sand, and the storm comes, and I'm telling you, both those houses look probably a lot the same during the storm. 
And someone could say, oh, they're not handling it very well. But at the end, the one is still on the rock. And I would encourage people in abuse, you know, take some time and those helping them, give them some time and keep looking to the rock. Jesus, have faith that he can he can bring you through it. And if you're trying to help someone, give them some time and and just sit back like Job's friends did and just listen. You know, Tom, you already mentioned that. That's an important thing. It's a hard thing to look at someone who's hurting and tell them that they're bitter. Mm. To tell them that they're overreacting, that they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, you know, half the reason I wrote Schizophrenic in the first place was generated out of so many of these conversations. It was it was people who were struggling to process how they had been from their perspective, either doctrinally or emotionally mistreated by independent Baptists, and their response is independent Baptists are evil. It was it was an overreaction to it. And I tried to write that book with charity in in mind and heart. But you have to look at people. I mean, that's that you can't help people if you don't tell them the truth. You just can't. And everyone in their world is lying to them because the lies are are nicer to hear and the lies make people immediately, you know, like you as in, oh, it's too bad. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. Aren't they awful? And you should go after them and this and that and the other. And somebody in their life has got to compassionately and lovingly speak the truth to them, whether it's the truth about bitterness or it's the truth about the grace of God or the truth about trusting God instead of instead of fearing man. Um, somebody's got to speak the truth to them. Yeah. yeah and I, I will say this, when it comes to that word bitterness, it, it needs to be clearly just shouted from the housetops. And it's, uh, understand if you've been through abuse and through a tough time and someone comes to you and says, boy, you're just, you're just bitter about that. And, and that's, that's not even a good method to take many times. I just, Bitter people yeah, don't respond right. well to that. Right. But that statement does not <laughs> that statement does not dismiss what really happened to you. Like when you really get hurt, you can become bitter. But that's that, you know, it's like the illustration of bitterness. It's like drinking poison, hoping it will hurt your enemy. And and bitterness will only destroy you and it will blind you. In fact, the Bible says thereby many be defiled. And the root of bitterness in Hebrews 12 talks about when we fail the grace of God. Well, what's failing the grace of God? It's it's not believing where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. It's not having faith that God Amen. can turn something good out of this. And it's Amen. basically, God, you failed me. And all bitterness ultimately is God messed up on something. And I'll tell you personally, I had to work through those things. Now, it wasn't in relation to abuse, but... In my upbringing and being in a single parent home and my father not being around, I, I had to work through some bitterness that was buried deep because I, I couldn't see the good in those hurtful things in my life. And I tell you, once I saw that, it it opened up to some grace and, and got rid of a lot of anger and hurt in my life. Maybe this throws a monkey wrench into the conversation. And if it does, we I hope we can just move on quickly from it. But I thought of a question that I don't necessarily have the answer for. And so I want to put it out there. But a lot of people, when they're abused, turn to um, solutions. They're, they're looking for solutions, I should say. So what is, the, what is the difference between God's way of dealing with this versus some of the secular ways that we're seeing promoted as, as advocacy in today, such as the Me Too movement, 
um, some of the more, uh, yeah, so, some of the more non-Christian approaches that we're seeing promoted. And and how do we discern between? There may even be an element or two that 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 movement gets right. Uh, and I hate to say that. I just want to just throw it out there and just see what what this could foster by way of discussion among the four of us. So what are what are the differences there, and and what do we have to be careful about? Well, I don't think it's wrong to work for justice or to cry for justice. The Bible shows us the martyrs in heaven in Revelation who are crying out for justice. <clears throat> God is a God of justice. But I think it's it's where is your primary focus at? If, if you become consumed by making sure that someone else pays for what they have done wrong, mm-hmm. that is going to fill your vision. There's a, there's a statement in, in biking, you go where you look. And if you're riding along and you look off to the side, that's where your bike's going to go, no matter how straight you were trying to go. And when people become consumed with trying to make sure justice is done, they they get to the place where they lose the capacity to forgive. They lose the capacity to respond in faith. They lose the capacity to see, as Brother Brudneck was talked about so well, to see the, to the hand of God at work producing more good out of that suffering. And it just fills all of their vision until they wreck their bike, so to speak. Go ahead, Steve. Well, yeah. what I would say is that I think part of helping someone through abuse is – letting them know that you are going to fight for their justice in a case where justice still needs to be served. And then the person that is going through that, although they might want that, um, let your friends fight for that. I I find that when I got to try to prove my own self right, it hurts me more than me just letting God deal with it or my friends deal with it. And I'm not saying abuse is something you just sit back and let God deal with, because some of the things we're talking about are crimes and justice needs to be served. But you've got to you've got to trust God. And I think helping someone through that is, you know, helping them to seek the justice. A good example of someone who was maybe obsessing on justice to the point where he did wrong was in the illustration of Tamar. Um, Absalom, right? I mean, that that's someone that he, he, I hate to use the word overreacted, but he went full vigilante um, vengeance mode. And that was not right either. That's a classic example of his response was a bad response, right? He's not responsible for what had happened to Tamar. Amna's responsible for that. David's response was bad. He didn't, he didn't deal with it to help Tamar or to discipline Amnon. Absalom's response was also bad because he took David's lack of response as his necessity to do it, to step out and to play the part of God and to take justice into his own hands. There's there's biblical mistakes all over that all over that story. And of course, they're easy to make, but there's nothing more passionate, especially if there's someone you love, you care about. You know, if it was, you know, as I'm looking at the screen, looking at the four of us, if it was your child who had been abused, it's really hard for you to respond. Okay, Mm -hmm. let me think my way through this. I got to do this biblically, A, B, C, and D. And no, it's a very emotional thing. And and, and so it's somewhat understandable, but still not justifiable. Right. And I would add to the topic of justice that when justice is served, and in every case, good grief, all of us want to see justice served, truth prevail, that that isn't going to solve bitterness. Justice being brought, hmm, you know, you can see that point. in Absal- Absalom's life. He, you know, he killed um, Amnon and that didn't 
you know, that didn't relieve him of, of just a bitter spirit and his problems in life. And good grief, you know, you want justice to be served, but you also, you also have got to trust God that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound and let him bring something um, through all that pain. Amen. Brother Martin Wickens, you've been awful quiet over there. I guess I'm thinking at the moment, if the if the case is something which is public, and usually it is something that, that goes that way, how can the congregation as a whole, so not just the pastor, but how can the whole congregation as brothers and sisters in Christ help bring about healing and, and support? Um, you know, I did a study one time, and again, I got the idea from somebody else. I don't even remember who at this point of all the one another's in the New Testament and then did a preaching series from it. It is it is amazing. As a church, I want our church to be externally focused in the sense of being after people with the gospel, carrying out the Great Commission. But God has given us, ta- tasked us with, uh, you know, 10 or 15 specific instructions in the New Testament in ways for us to minister to one another. And I would say a short answer without running through all that list, Pastor Wickens, would be, to try to to try to point our people in the direction of using those various one another's, whether it's hospitality or whether it's you know uh, serving or whether it's loving or whether it's being charitable or being forgiving, of of pointing people in that direction and trying to get them to to rally around that person and minister to them with those one another's, so to speak. I'm not sure so if that's a pro- helpful answer. Well, yeah, but from you know the the obvious answer is the pastor's got to cultivate that, and it may be. I'm speculating. It may be that the answer to that is to have some gentle conversations and maybe not some incident specific conversations with your church. Um, A lot of times the heat of the moment is where things get very, very, very out of control with responses, reactions, et cetera. And, you know, Tom, I think you brought up a great point. You know, if if it were one of our kids, maybe it was you, Steve, but if it was one of our kids, I mean, we would (laughs) be furious. We'd be, we'd be just absolutely angry. Um, and it's such a sensitive topic that I think there has to be training prior to the the flame and the fire getting lit, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think something that you mentioned there is we, we you know, we prepare our congregations just with general discipleship principles, how to love one another, how to express that love and all the other one another passages. Um, but I think also having established policies and we, we kind of touched on this in you know the previous episodes we won't go into it now i guess but you know it will help someone to heal if they know that the church is a place where they can heal you know they understand it's a place where they are going to be cared for they're going to be ministered to um and you know some of that may have to do with how we respond to cases outside of our church so the healing is, is almost preemptive um you know if it does tragically happen, they have a, again, kind of a baseline position to begin with. They know that when they go to the pastor or go to a brother or sister in Christ, they have the expectation of being helped. Does that make so sense? Talking, yes, uh, completely. Um, you're building an atmosphere in which that is allowed to happen and encouraged to happen, which mm-hmm. is, you use the word preemptive, I think. I think wisdom and leadership prepares for not just what you what you're what you plan to deal with but what you might deal with so for example let me give you a practical thing here 
So I, I've asked a couple of different ladies in our church to take some counseling classes specifically so that when and one of these situations comes up, if it happens with a woman, I can pair her with a couple of ladies who've already had some training as well as some life experience. You know, they're older in the Lord, you know, let the older women, you know, mentor the younger ones so that I can put them with someone who can who can work them through some answers that so there's already at least somewhat of a plan in place. And we're not a big church, but somewhat of a plan in place to help someone mm-hmm. process that. It doesn't just land on my desk. This is ministry from other ladies in the church to a lady, for example. I, I think that might be a practical way to answer that. Yeah, I think that's good. I, I guess, you know, we have churches, we know of churches, and some of you do have an addictions ministry. And so if someone comes into your church and they're addicted to alcohol, they know there is a there's a path that they can follow and they can see examples that they can try try and emulate. And I guess that's where as churches in the the area we live, um, tragically having a very clear set of policies that we say, okay, look, if, if this if this has happened or if it does happen, this is our response. And um you know, I love what you've done in, in having others apart from yourself who are prepared to to administer help. I don't have all the answers. That's for dead sure. You got some good <laughs> answers, though. Uh, yeah, uh, there's very good answers on this, and you know, in keeping with the kind of with the theme of we want um, we want to help the victims. We want to we want to know we want to educate ourselves on how to help the victims. We want to give reasoned and and scriptural responses to that side of things. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about bitterness. We've talked about some things, some conclusions we have to come to. Um, and I, I just really, I kind of want to go back to this idea of deconstructing. Have, have, how do you help someone who is literally losing faith in God because of either what they've seen happen to others or they've seen happen to themselves. And I don't, I don't know that that's always labeled as deconstructing, but it's certainly something that we're seeing in some high profile situations, even in recent days that as pastors, we've got to be prepared to address that. Well, I think I would, I wouldn't try and defend the church straight away or or Christianity as a whole, but would always be going back to basics and saying, okay, look, you know, we can't answer all of the the whys. You know, we we can't look at, you know, the solution to everything. But right now, let's just look to Jesus, you know, and, and that is very simple language, I know. But uh, I think sometimes there's a danger where you have a ministry-centric response rather than a, a victim-centric response. And so, no, you don't want them to walk away from church and, and everything to do with faith and religion. But I think your starting point shouldn't be how do we keep them in and avoid deconstruction completely, but how do we keep them close to Jesus and keep them in the word? And then down the line, those those broader concerns of, you know, staying among the church family will, I think, be dealt with. So you're I think you're right. You know, I, I think you're right. I just think you're, you're going to get criticized for that answer. And that may well, be the way that it is. He is right. But there's certainly additional right answers beyond that. I agree that walking with God, cultivating a close relationship with God is always the answer in in almost every question that comes up. But let me throw you another idea. And this goes back to a couple of things that you've alluded to, Brother Brudnack, about uh, uh, understanding how to process when it seems like God's not been good. 
I did a study last year in our church. I think I did 19 weeks on a Wednesday night uh, series on suffering. And part of the reason I did that was not just to help people who were suffering, but to help people who would be going through suffering because the devil uses that like a crowbar in so many people's lives to pry them away from their faith in God. And so if you can give them answers before that event happens, as much as you can fill their pantry with 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 the with the the edified the, the food they're going to need to deal with that. I think if we can help people with a the theology of suffering to understand that something bad is going to happen to you, whether it's someone who abused you or life or disease or you know, natural disaster or some combination of all of that or seasons of suffering in your life. Here's why God allows that. Here's how you process that. I think that gives them the tools to keep them from necessarily going all the way to deconstruction and saying, well, God's not real. The Bible's not real. You know, there's no real answers to any of this. If we've given them those answers ahead of time, I think that helps prevent some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also the when we respond appropriately as leaders to the abuse, we we demonstrate love and we demonstrate true justice, by the way, and that helps them to see Christ in that. And so much can be prevented by a correct response from a church leader as it relates to abuse, mm, right, um, right. you know, of someone in your church. And so that I think that's I think that's a, an interesting I think it's a, a correct response. Yeah. And as far as deconstructing goes, I think one of the things that can really feed that, as I've seen, is when people who, you know, call themselves believers don't act rightly when it comes to that aspect. You know, I think of what Paul says to the Jews in Romans 3, or I'm sorry, Romans 2, when he's starting to um, you know, you, you know, you know how Romans is laid out that the wrath of God is revealed and the, you know, the heathen man's a sinner, the moral man's a sinner, the Jews a sinner. Well, in that section there, he says, you know, thou therefore that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself, you know, thou preachest that a man should not steal. Do you steal? And he goes through these sins saying, you keep saying, don't do this and you do it and don't do this and you do it. And he ends it in verse 24. He says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as Mm. it is written. And that is something that's very difficult that when someone sees people that say they're right and say they're good, um, doing the things that aren't right and good, it, it gives an opportunity to blaspheme God. And here, you're this picture of godliness. And that's why I think it is important that we we don't, you know, um, we don't condone anything in any way, shape, matter, or form, and we deal with things. And, and from my experience, my preacher friends that have ever had these things deal with their churches, they deal with them very firmly, quickly, publicly. And I, I think that's part of helping people through um, not getting into that realm where they're like, you know, these people say they're godly. They don't even care that this happened to me and they're hiding it and they're, you know, shuffling some guy off to a different place. That's that's maddening. It's crazy. And that's going to hurt people's faith in God. And I think it's good to be aware as well that it's not only the abused that we'll have to help but the relatives of the abused. And so 
you know, it's it's horrendous for any one of us to even try and consider. But, you know, if a child in our church and again, I think it's worth, con- you know, keeping in mind that we would deal with a child differently than we would an adult, um, whether it's current or historic or whatever the case may be. But, you know, how would we minister not only to the child, but help the parents of the child? Um, and, you know, that that's an area I think we need to have an awareness as well. Yeah, and and the thing with that is, um, you, I think your sole goal—not your only goal, but a, a big goal that you have there—is to keep them do, from doing something they would regret, mm-hmm. and to keep them from you know. And and you can tell them, "I am doing this because I love you, and I know that you're very angry." But if you respond, then it will make matters worse. And being the voice of reason, um, you know, that's that's something that. Um, I think becomes a big, uh, a big deal in the heat of the moment with helping the family members, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that, those are all important things to consider. Absolutely. You've done some of that brother Russ, haven't you in your chaplain work yes. or in your, yeah. 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 It's actually what I had in mind when I was saying that, you know, there's, there's certain things. One of you guys earlier, Martin, I believe said, um, having a ministry of presence. And I think that when someone's abused, um, in the way that we're discussing today, that some of that same approach applies being there for them and not necessarily, Tom, you already said this, but not saying what you think right away, listening, uh, realizing they're going through some stages of grieving in that yeah. moment. And, and the stages of grief are, are, you know, well-documented. They're worth studying for any pastor. Um, I'm actually getting ready here in the near future to take a week long class uh, crisis counseling class and things of that nature because mm-hmm. I have great interest in that, and I I would encourage pastors to do that. It'll it'll help you become a better pastor um, in the moment uh, of of great need for your people. So yeah, that's that's something that I've had to do before for sure. I think ultimately this has to come back to Christ, and I, I love the statement that's made. And this is out of context, which is a terrible way to to introduce the point. But (laughs) when Pilate looks at Jesus and says, I find no fault with this man. And he was speaking legally. He couldn't find a reason to execute him. But what a wonderful descriptive phrase of Jesus Christ. And no matter how the people we minister to have been abused, have been hurt, have been crushed, Mm -hmm. have been uh, just, just brutalized, no matter how much it has shaken their faith in authority, in, and of course, so much of our image of God is formed in our image of our fathers, but no matter how much that has been damaged, it is a precious thing to point them to Christ and know they will find no fault in him. He will never do them wrong. He will always do them right. There is nothing in him but good and right. Amen. And to point them to Christ and tell them, listen, your faith is not in me, not in our church, not in even our belief system in the sense of our particular stripe. Your faith is in Christ and always will be and always should be. Amen. And that's why we call him the beard. Such wisdom. Uh, I think you should end this one with the letter today. Dear church, no one understands better than Christ what it was to be abused. He endured horrific things at the hands of his authorities, things he did not deserve to go through. In this, 
as in all other things he is our pattern. How did he respond? What did he avoid in that response? What did he embrace in that response? As we minister in a fallen world, inevitably we will find our paths cross with someone who has endured abuse. In many cases, their worldview and approach to life has been formed by it. And God brings to us an opportunity to speak into that life, to pour in the oil and wine of the truth of God's word. Let us be patient, nay, long-suffering even as we deal with them. Let us be compassionate. At the same time, let us refuse the temptation to speak smooth words, words that will make them feel better temporarily, but will leave them unable to grow in the grace that God is making available to them. Let us point them toward the sufficiency of Scripture. Let us point them toward the grace of God. Let us point them toward the glory of forgiveness. Let us help them frame their pursuit of justice inside these perspectives. And when they crash, let us help them up, dust them off, and point them in the right direction again. Most of all, let us point them toward Christ. Jesus is both the example of and the means of recovery. It was said of the early church, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Above everything else, let us point these broken individuals to him, for he alone healeth the broken in heart. We respectfully remain your servant, Steve Rudnack, Tom Brennan, Martin Wickens, and Stephen Russ. Mm-hmm.